Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 164 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be chatting with Motability and looking at what they're doing to help improve access to chargers. This season, the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that I'm speaking with an insurance expert later in the season. We're going to be discussing EV premiums, how they're calculated, and what can be done to reduce them. Our main topic of discussion today is motability. We've talked about motability before on the podcast back in an earlier episode where John Brooks, Beardy McBearface on Twitter, came on to talk about how he got his BMW i3 sourced and delivered from them. Because John has mobility issues, it was important for him to get a vehicle that was both affordable and worked with his lifestyle. Well, once users with disabilities have an electric vehicle, the problems don't stop there. We've talked with Kate Tyrrell from ChargeSafe on this show about some of the work they're doing with understanding and ranking charges from a safety and accessibility point of view. The work that ChargeSafe have done feeds, amongst other things, into the work that Motability are doing. And to discuss this today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Jenkins. John is Head of Innovation at Motability. Hi, Gary. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on. That's quite all right. Can you give me a brief overview of, well, I was going to say Motability Operations, but I think it might be better just to sort of just so the listeners understand, talk to me about the Motability Charity and the operations and how those are different things and how they link together, please. And then what it is specifically you do within Motability Operations. Yeah, of course. I'm more, more than happy to. I mean, um, it is something that uh, very often confuses people. I, I guess the thing that most people will be um, relatively aware of is the Motability Scheme. And that is effectively um, a scheme that disabled drivers will use to access uh, what we like to call worry-free mobility. So access a vehicle as part of the benefits they receive. Now, sat behind that, you have a couple of organizations. Um, You have Motability, the charity, which is a national charity. Their mandate is much wider. and Their their mandate is to support wider transport, accessible transport for the disabled population as a whole. So it's 15 million, 14.6 million people that um, are disabled within the UK, and the Motability Charity um, really looks to be able to provide accessible transport for that group of people. Motability Operations is effectively a leasing organization. We're responsible for providing the Motability Scheme um, to disabled people within the UK. Now, there are about 2 million people in the UK that are eligible to come onto the uh, Motability Scheme. Um, we have about 650,000 customers on our scheme driving around in our vehicles as of today. So it's a huge fleet, um, and it's very often a fleet that uh, many people aren't aware of. Um, it's by far the largest fleet of, of drivers in the UK. Um, so a, a great organization to be working for, um, a very large organization that a lot of people are not aware of, and that, that really is Motability Operations, the leasing company. My role within within Motability Operations then is really to 
try to understand in the changing world that we're having, you know, we're moving into a, a, a world of electric vehicles, which is a significant transition for our customers. And so my role is to try to ensure that as part of that transition, our customers will continue to have access to worry-free motoring. Now, I'm sure most of the people listening, probably all of the people listening, will have had challenging times in their electric vehicle uh, over the past, particularly coming to terms with you know, how you drive the vehicle, how you charge the vehicle, how you get the best value for money out of the vehicle. We will have a lot of customers that will be going on that journey over the next five, seven years. And so it's important that we're able to find the best products in the market that have a focus on accessibility to be able to ensure that our customers can make that transition into electric vehicles as easy as possible. The other thing I'd just like to point out is as we move to 2030 and the, the ban on new ICE vehicles, our customers, in the way the business model works today, would only be able to lease a new vehicle. And therefore, what we'd say is by the time we get to the end of this decade, to be a customer of Motability Operations, effectively, you're going to need to be in an electric vehicle for, for the main group of our customers. Say the main group of our customers, we do have customers that are in larger vehicles. We call them wheelchair accessible vehicles, where... Um, the transition to EVs will be slightly later in line with the government's targets. So that's 2035. Just sort of looping back into something that you said there, if, if you're in the business of providing electric vehicles for people with disabilities, there, what are the sort of criteria that would determine whether an electric vehicle will go on the list? Because there is, I forget what the exact figure is, 50, 60, 70 different electric vehicles currently for sale all lease in the UK, but I'm pretty sure they're not all on the list of vehicles that are eligible under the motability scheme. So what sort of criteria determine what goes on to the, uh, the list? So we do, we do have some criteria, that's absolutely correct. And um, what it comes down to is really the cost associated with the vehicle. So effectively the value of that vehicle. Um, and so if a vehicle is over a certain amount, it becomes very challenging for us to put that on the scheme. The nature of the scheme means that effectively the rental you pay is fixed. It's in line with the benefit you receive from the government. We can um, put advanced payments in. So if we had a vehicle that was um, slightly more expensive, we could put an advanced payment in. But again, we're limited on the level we can go to for those advanced payments. With the transition to electric vehicles, this becomes quite a challenge. Obviously, the vehicles are significantly more expensive than what we see in the ICE market today. And so it really creates, um, creates quite a challenge for us in getting these vehicles onto the scheme. Um, we're working hard to get as many vehicles as we can um, on the scheme, as many as we can as possible onto the scheme. But it is a challenge. Um, and so... Our focus is ensuring customers have as much choice as we can possibly give them. But it does mean the premium vehicles, particularly the premium electric vehicles, the, the cost associated will just not allow for those vehicles to come onto the scheme. Now, we, we always have exceptions to this, Gary. And if we see a vehicle that has you know, particularly good uh, accessibility credentials and will enable um, a certain group of customers access to an electric vehicle, we can make exceptions. But for the main scheme, we are limited by what we can offer 
on that price differential. We're doing everything we can to put as many vehicles as we can on possible as possible. Pleased to announce that yesterday we, we moved um, BYD onto the scheme as well. So we're, we're really getting a bit of variety and working with um, now some new emerging manufacturers to really try and broaden out that choice for our customers. Excellent. A couple of questions that come out of that. Uh, the first one is, are you sourcing directly from the manufacturers or are you sourcing via local dealers? Yes. And it's a good question, a really good question. So uh, I guess the dealerships, the dealer network is really the face of the motability scheme. These are the people that are speaking on a day-to-day basis with our, our customers. And so what we do is we work with dealerships to make sure that they have um, specific training, stability training. We call um, the dealerships motability specialists. So we have motability specialists within our dealer network, and they would be the people responsible for speaking to our customers. In terms of the dynamics of, of, of cash flow, that varies from, from one to another. But by and large, the way it would work is you would place your order at a dealership. Um, that dealership would then place the order with the manufacturer. But in the main, our relationship would be via the dealer. And the second part of that is, how is this, I think you might have mentioned it, but maybe a little bit more detail would be good. How is this all funded? So um, I guess the, the, the funding for the customer um, as in the, the rental that you would pay for a vehicle comes from the DWP. So um, as I mentioned, there's 2 million people in the UK that are eligible for a higher rate of personal independence payment or disability living allowance um, under the, the benefit system we have. If a customer chooses to take a vehicle on the motability scheme, then that benefit gets rediverted from um, DWP to the customer and it comes directly to us from the DWP. What we would then do is give the customer uh, a vehicle in return for that. And is there a possibility for a customer to say, right, there is X amount in the pot that's coming from DWP. I would like to supplement that with an additional amount of funding to get maybe a vehicle that's not on the list, but the net cost to motability in the government would, would be exactly the same as one that is on the list. We don't have that exact dynamic set up at the moment. It's not something that, that we can actually do. Um, what we do say is if there's a vehicle that is more expensive than the total um, allowance payment, then you can pay for the extra, if you like, upfront in the form of an advance payment, like you'd um, pay if you went to get a, a retail vehicle um, on a PCP, for example. And under the mobility scheme, are these vehicles... At the end of a given period of time, are they sent back or are they are they owned by the the drivers? Is it, is it sort of a lease scheme or is it a purchase scheme? Yeah, so think about it in terms of a, a traditional three-year lease, really. So um, we effectively, Motability Operations will own the vehicle. Um, the customer will provide us with a rental. It's a three-year lease. When we get to the end of that lease, we then sell that vehicle into the second-hand market on a B2B basis. So we would work with dealerships to sell those vehicles back into the um, market. And for those customers that have special requirements for a vehicle, are the modifications done under the scheme? Do the vehicles come to you first to get the modification? To, how, how does that work? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of you know maybe hand controls or wheelchair ramps or something like that. How does that work? Yeah, and, and those two examples, they actually, they actually vary quite significantly. So something like hand controls, we would apply to the vehicle free of charge. So if you require an, what we call an adaptation to your vehicle, and hand controls is a really good example, 
then we would look to install those for our customers free of charge. Where you have more fundamental changes to the vehicle and, and a wheelchair ramp would come under what we would call a wheelchair accessible vehicle. There is a grants program that's put in place by the charity that would um, allow for some funding of that. Um, and we would also try to um, fund that, that um, adaption as much as possible. However, these are quite expensive. And so from time to time, we will need customers to also support that um, conversion if you like, into a wheelchair accessible vehicle. Now, I read, I don't know where I read it, probably on LinkedIn this morning, that you're looking for somebody to help work in refurbishment of vehicles. How, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, this is an exciting new venture for us. So we've um, procured a site in a place called Colville where we are really looking to do the refurbishment of vehicles. And um, wh why, why are we doing that? I guess that the main part is we see a huge opportunity in being able to drive more value back into the scheme by refurbing vehicles that come off lease and selling them at a higher value. And I think one of the beauties of the way the, the motability scheme is constructed is we don't have shareholders. Um, and so everything, you know, every penny, every pound that we make, it's reinvested back into the scheme. We're constantly striving to do better for our customers. So the more the more value we can make, then the better we can we can shape the, the proposition that our customers receive. Like, for example, as I've just mentioned, free adaptations. What happens to the refurbished vehicles? Do they go onto the open market or do you uh, sort of run a mail shot out to uh, existing people? Say, we've got refurbished vehicles, this is how much it's going to cost. How, how would somebody get a hold of one of the refurbished vehicles? Yeah, so, so it's, it's a B2B relationship. So we would sell them to um, the dealership network by and large. We sell about 750 vehicles on average every day. So we're quite quite a big player in this market and we have uh, our own pricing engine that ensures those vehicles are being sold at an optimum price point. But really it is a very much a B2B relationship. And so if you're driving a previously owned motability vehicle, the chances are you will have bought that from a, a dealer. Let's move on a little bit now um, and talk about something that's a little bit closer to my my heart. I, you are aware of the fact that I did a lot of work with ChargeSafe uh, last year doing some evaluations for the PAS 1899 standards working on a, a project. Talk to me about the motability slash motability operations involvement in the PAS 1899 standards. Sure. So I guess if we start from the beginning, PAS 1899 is something that both OZEV and Motability, the charity, have sponsored. And it really provides a, a standard for the accessibility of, of charge points. Um, it provide, we've worked with Designability as well to provide some really clear parameters around what we think is almost a minimum for uh, accessibility of a, a charge point. I think one of the things that really keeps me awake at night is how accessible that, that charging infrastructure is. I think, Gary, you will know firsthand, having been out and inspected these charge points on behalf of ChargeSafe, who we work closely with, many, many chargers out there are really not, not fit for, for um, a disabled person. And, you know, the really basic examples are where you put a charge point on, on a curb or on an elevated piece of, of land, or you put big bollards in front of them, very often there are really tight spaces. And, and so it becomes quite a challenge. And we have lots of stories of customers, you know, trying four or five different charge points with 
very little success because they simply can't access the charge point. I think, again, a lot of the listeners will will um, be all too familiar with going to a charge point and it not working and, and the frustrations that come from that. You Really, if you then add on that you're maybe a wheelchair user, for example, it just compounds the issue. So while they may be working, you can't actually get to them to use them. And so um, we as electric vehicle drivers do have a level of charging anxiety. Um, the more you drive, the lower that becomes. But you're always thinking about, you know, where's this next charge coming from? Um, that becomes incredibly more pronounced when you're also thinking about, will I actually be able to use the charger at all? And that's really why, um, Gary, we've been looking to work with companies like ChargeSafe, who I think are doing a really great job at looking at the charging infrastructure and starting to measure for consumers and for charge point operators where charge points um, have, well, you know, the features charge points have that allow them to be more accessible and safe, frankly. And I think, you know, my view on this is we are on a bit of a transition and the network is springing up overnight. People are starting to listen. The great thing Motability and OZEV have done is create a standard by which charge point operators can work towards. And I think on the flip side, then, the great thing that organizations like ChargeSafe, together with your good self, are doing is providing people with information around those charge points. So around the infrastructure today, what will work for me and what, what will not. And I think there's two aspects of that. Uh, one is there's providing the information to the end users, to the, the uh, people who are driving the vehicles to say, you know, don't use this charger because, as you said, it's up on a, on a plinth. You're not going to be able to reach the cable. You won't be able to see the screen. The bollards are too close together. It's got the bump stops and all that sort of thing. And I think that's very valuable information to to get out into the market. But the other side to that or the other aspect is being able to get those standards out to the people who are actually designing and installing the charge points. Now, I, I had a sort of a mini conversation um, on social media from, I forget exactly who it was, but they were talking about how they putting a, I think it was a, a hub 10 or 12 units and it's all done to the PAS 1899 standards. Uh, no, actually, they didn't say that. I, I asked them, did you uh, adhere to the standards? And they went, oh, yes, all our implementations are, or installs adhere to the PAS 1899 standards. So I did a sort of a, a quick search. I found one that they'd installed earlier on at uh, back end of last year, and it was up on a curb. So, you know, and there was no uh, drop curb anywhere for them to, to get wheelchair access. So the, I, I think what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is, what sort of teeth will this standard have? How how is how somebody going to hold a charge point operator accountable to say, yeah, this is the minimum standard, and we really really need you to adhere to that. And if not, what's the punishment for not adhering to that standard? And I think I think that's the the million pound question, really, isn't it, Gary? And and I think if we had the answers to that, then. Um, you know, we could be in a much better place. We, we need to look at it with uh, through a couple of different lenses, I think. So I think the first piece for me is to recognize, you know, in wider industry, for the charge point operators, there is an added layer of expense here in creating things that um, are aligned with the PAS 1899 standard. And so I would almost like to see something where we have 
some form of involvement, be it from government, um, to, to say, well, actually, you're building them to these standards. We appreciate there's an incremental cost. So are there ways we can look to support that? I think the piece that I can have more control over in, in my role, really, is looking at which charge point operators are starting to adhere to these standards. How can we make sure our users, which already are, are, are pretty vast, you know, we have 19,000 electric vehicle drivers on the road today. How can we make sure that our users are aware that these charge points do adopt the standard or do work for their specific accessibility needs? And therefore, we can start to promote them. Now, with that promotion comes really strong utilization. There's, as I say, a lot of drivers that are looking for charge points that will work for them. And so you almost need to approach it from a, how do we work with the charge point operators? And I haven't got the answer for that. But we can also approach it from a, how do we work with our customers to ensure that they are aware of the charge points that will actually work for them? And what you'll start to see then is those charge points gaining the traction and utilization of the disabled community. And, and that's no small thing. I mentioned earlier how big our fleet are. I also mentioned that we almost need to accelerate our EV adoption because of the um, the government targets that are in place, um, or the government legislation, in fact, that's in place. And therefore, we're going to have a significant amount of drivers on the road that are disabled, that are in electric vehicles, that will be looking for charge points that can work for them. And I see my role in, in, in this piece is making sure that our customers are aware of which charge points will work for them. Now, we can do that, as I say, by working with the charge point operators, but also by working really closely with our customers to give them the right information about a charge point. I was in a conversation earlier today with the guys from EVA England, and I asked them pretty much the same question. How are we going to make sure that legislation like this or standards like this have some sort of uh, teeth? And one of the comments that was made, and I forget who said it exactly, was at some point as we go forward, there is the possibility of a um, a legal challenge being raised to say you are discriminating against a certain group of people by not following these standards. Do you think that's a possibility, a feasibility? I think that the um, the gentleman at EVA England will know much better than I will. Um, they have much better uh, much better interaction, I think, with the drivers as a whole across the the wide EV community. If you said to me. Would the outcome mean that we need to start mandating the PAS 1899 standard? And as a collective, we're going to support charge point operators in doing that. And I think that would be a great outcome for all involved. Um, PAS 1899 isn't just something that disabled people will benefit from. Young parents with prams. You know, there's, there's several times where I've had to pull out of the space in order to get my, my son actually in the car because the space is just too tight for me to open the door turn the child seat around. And so it's it's really, you know, many different people in many different circumstances will benefit from having a, um, a more accessible infrastructure. So if we can follow the PAS 1899, it'll mean that charge points work for everyone. I think what we can't do, though, is lose sight of the fact that, you know, it is hard rolling these charge points out. It is expensive. And so we need to we need to make sure that as as organisations such as Motability Operations, Motability for Charity, OZ, you know, we're supporting the people that are working really hard in doing this because 
They're rolling out charge points at a rate of knots. It is expensive to do. It's even more expensive when you then have to have wider bays um, and you have to make different modifications. So how can we, how can we find some way to, to collaborate um, and to almost meet in the middle on this? And I, I know that sounds like I'm sitting on the fence, but I'm, I'm trying to be quite realistic about how we best achieve the end goal here. And I, I, think, I think there's maybe a carrot and stick scenario. I think just holding charge point operators to account and, and, and calling out the bad is not the, the way we do this because I genuinely think they're you know they're trying to do trying to do some good stuff and, and the ones I've spoken to are familiar with the PAS standard and are trying to adopt it. And when you have a conversation then with them about, you know, the scale of users that are affected by this, all of a sudden the commercials start ringing true as well. So I think there's a few different routes we can go down. To answer your question. I think if the outcome is, you know, a desired outcome, that means we can have a mandated PAS 1899, then then fantastic. But I don't think we can just use just use stick on this. I think we need to work together to ensure that there's um, there's benefits realised across the piece. What I found interesting reading through the PAS document is we we talk about this as being uh, standards for disabled and what most people's mind immediately goes to is, oh, it's somebody in a wheelchair. But it's a lot more than that. You know, there's, there's terminology in there which talks about, is the screen legible for somebody who might not have perfect eyesight, who might have uh, an amount of color blindness? Do we have words on the screen or do we have graphics and symbols on the screen? And, you know, it's little things like that which I don't think are going to be a great cost to put in for the charge point operators. Sure, if you've got to take two bays up to to get a wheelchair accessible bay, that's going to be one thing, but not putting bump stops in, not putting things on on curbs and actually having the chargers at the ground level. I I can't see in my own mind how things like that are going to radically increase the cost of doing an install. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I I couldn't, couldn't agree with you. There's absolutely low-hanging fruit. And I think a lot of that low-hanging fruit is more about educating the charge point operators um, on what is in the PAS 1899 and what are really the simple changes you can make. As you say, moving a bump stop will be massive for our customers. And I'm not sure that charge point operators really appreciate that. When you start speaking to them and you get in a room with them and you almost talk about exactly the the challenges that creates it's almost like a, a eureka moment for them to be honest and 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 so you start to see and they start to see that actually there are you're absolutely right Barry. there are some things we can do here that make this much easier i mean while it does sound a little bit scientific having to adjust your screen coloring or the the way the terminology on the screen most of these organizations will have um will have websites and apps that will feature different accessibility credentials so they'll be familiar with it i would imagine they and if they're not they will have been in a past life i'm sure so it's not not something that is should be really alien and it's not as you say it's not something that will cost an arm and a leg but it is something that requires education and so i believe motability and ozev have done a great job in getting the paths out and promoting it a big part of my job is playing that um, almost commercial advocate 
of it and and really trying to promote those charge point operators with the fleet we have behind us that are taking up the PAS 1899 standard. But as I said earlier, I'm also quite realistic and I want to work with these people to see the benefits it will provide to our customers. And yes, there's low-hanging fruit. There's also expense involved. But actually, when you stack up the commercials, it really does start to make sense. Um, so I, I think, I, you know, as with drivers, I talk about education a lot. But I think it's probably one of the most important parts of the wider transition to electric vehicles. I don't think education needs to just stop with um, the end consumer. I think where you're talking about things that are perhaps a little bit alien to some, education needs to happen with the charge point operators too. You know, they're learning their game. They're learning their craft. And so it's good that we've been able to get in there with a really strong standard, be able to talk to them about what adopting that standard means, but also be able to talk to them about the potential utilization benefits that they'd have off, off the back end. Now, John, one of the sort of things that comes out of uh, the PAS 1899 document is the fact that this is a standard that we're expecting uh, charge point operators to apply to any new sites that are going in. But obviously, we've already got 30-odd thousand chargers that are in the, the ground in the UK that don't actually have that standard applied to them. So is there an expectation that at some point this will be retroactively applied and we'd expect CPOs to go back and, and refit those? Or are we saying that the ones that are in the ground automatic uh, at the moment, they're kind of exempt and we're never ever going to do anything about them? And I mean, I can't, I can't give a definite answer on that. I'd like to think that um, what we will see is as better charge points, more accessible charge points get installed, those older charge points start to become slightly redundant. They need updating. I mean, we've already seen that they have quite a short life lifespan, you know, um, with, with even some five, six-year-old kit um, starting to really not work, the legacy stuff starting to not work. I mean, BP have, have seen that. Um, so I'd imagine that there will be a, a short life cycle on a lot of these things and, and you know, our charge point operators will be able to go in and refine what is in the ground today. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if you recall this, Gary, but I think at one point they had to uh, lower every cash point in the UK just to, just to adhere to um, wheelchair users. Um, and now they're all built at that same height. So the standard, while not adopted initially, through some learnings and experience within the industry, identified they needed to be changed, and therefore they were changed. So I'm hopeful that um, as we progress through and as our charge point operators see the benefit of having something that's accessible for all, together with the relatively short lifespan of, uh, of charge points, we'll start to see some refinement of the existing infrastructure. One of the things that I know from discussions with people like Kate from, from ChargeSafe is that she's producing a very big, very comprehensive database for all the charges that have been evaluated and they've been evaluated on, you know, 100, 150 different uh, criteria. Do Motability have access to either some or all of that data? We do. Um, so we work very closely with, with ChargeSafe, as, as you know, Gary. Um, we absolutely see the merit in what they are doing, and we um, we have worked with Kate and the team over the past year to understand how we can really bring that information to our customers. Our work is is ongoing, um, but absolutely we have access to it. Um, having access to it and then being able to provide it 
to our customers in a way that's meaningful are two very different things. And so we are working very hard within my team to try and understand how we can best relay this information to customers. As you said, there's an incredible amount of detail in there. And I think, you know, when you're going, when you're looking for a charge point, you perhaps haven't got time to sift through 150 questions for each charge point. So how do we make it meaningful, relatively easy to digest, but also something that works across you know, the, the, the broad range of disabilities that we have on on our scheme. And that's really the challenge. And that's what we're we're actively and frantically looking at uh, as as we speak. And we have done some live trials, we've done some tests, we've worked with Oxfordshire City Council who have been absolutely wonderful um, to work with in understanding, you know, which which of the the credentials and the, the inspections that Kate has pulled together really stand out as key enablers for, for our customers. And therefore, how can we merge a huge data set into something that's relatively easy to consume and make decisions on when you're looking for that next charge? And are you able to share the sort of delivery method for that to your customers? Are you putting an app together? Is this something that you're hoping to incorporate into the vehicles themselves have you given thought to that sort of delivery method we've given a lot of thought to it and i'd probably say yes to all the above i think um building an app is not easy um and there's a lot of good apps out there at the moment so um this is not information i necessarily want to be just owned and shared by motability motability operations and only for the use of our scheme members you know this is not a commercial venture here I prefer this information exist in every mapping tool that the UK has, you know, whether it's a better route plan, whether it's that map, whatever it is, whether it's power, Metroverse, uh, you know, we want this information to be readily available to um, not only the disabled population, but also, you know, anybody that feels they need to have more room or they need to have some specifics. So the answer is quite a broad one. Um, it's one that we're absolutely focused on at the moment. Um, these things, unfortunately, don't happen overnight, but we're hopeful that over the course of 2023, we will be able to say, and hopefully sooner, we will be able to say, you know, now the, this information can start to exist in whether it's a Motability app or whether it's within one of the main mapping tools or all of the main mapping tools. Um, I'm not so precious about that. My bigger concern is how we make sure that customers have it. That makes absolute sense. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like me to have asked you? I mean, what well, we could just—I could just spend two minutes covering because I mean, all we've talked about really is charge point accessibility, and obviously our innovation within EV span across a broad range of subjects, which I could touch on in probably a minute. Absolutely. Go for it, please. So I, I guess we start with, I mentioned earlier on the podcast, education is is absolutely paramount. And so what we're trying to do within Motability Operations is provide customers with you know, good information, good access to self-service tools, and good links to other self-service tools, like, for example, Right Charge, where you can look at tariffs, where customers can go and, and really get a good grounding of information and understanding of what EV ownership really means. We also are working really hard with our dealerships to under, to make sure that they understand what uh, you know what the, the detail around EV ownership, what it means for our customers, what the right vehicles for our customers would mean. Education being so important, 
then move into charging. We spoke a lot about how you find the right charger for yourself, how you find a charger that meets your accessibility needs. What we haven't spoken about is payment. And payment um, is a bit of a pain for most EV drivers, I think it's fair to say. You layer on some um, some certain disabilities, and actually what you tend to find is payment um, charging can take longer. And so actually getting the uh, charge started before the timeout has happened after your payment can often be quite challenging for our customers. So we have experience of customers having multiple pre-authorizations taken out. Now, bear in mind, a lot of our customers rely on benefits to survive. Actually, going to a charge and having £150 taken out of their account because you've had five pre-authorizations or even having any energy is a problem. So how do we work with different payment providers and actually charge point operators to make sure that that doesn't happen? So trying to, trying to increase that time out time but also trying to create a facility whereby that can't happen so we look at we look across that piece um the other bit we're looking at then is how can we make ev ownership more efficient for our customers so we've all heard of smart charging you know we are part of the indra trial on vehicle to home we're working with ev energy we're looking at ways that our customers who potentially will have their car parked at home at different times of the day different times of the day to um to other people in the in the country could they make um, more savings as a result of more enhanced smart charging or vehicle-to-home, vehicle-to-grid technology? And so we're working within, within that space as well to really understand how we can bring as much value back into our customers as, as possible. Um, so what we're trying to do, Gary, when we're looking at this EV transition is look at every step of EV ownership and make sure that our customer journey Lies up, lines up with one that you know provides customers with the best access to electric vehicle information, the best tools you can have in terms of ownership, and also the best information and best opportunity to be able to drive as much value back into your into your household, really, as possible by using your your electric vehicle. When I was doing the evaluations for the yeah. uh, charges, it, it was quite obvious that what I would look at and think of as acceptable is absolutely not acceptable for somebody who has a disability. So, you know, asking somebody, an able-bodied person like me, to identify what the issues are for an EV driver is not going to work. Now, obviously, you've got a large number of people who are uh, with one or more disabilities or different types of disabilities who are driving electric cars. How are you getting that information from them to, to understand, for example, it's timing out too quickly before I can get the... Uh, the payment method authorized. Therefore, I'm I'm ending up with 150 quid on the the bank account. Do you do you have a subset of people that you go to, or or do you just sort of get this information in sort of um, by osmosis from you know however that happens? What's what's that process? Yeah, no, I say uh, again, a good question, and and you know very often getting the right customer feedback is really tricky. And you know when you have 19,000 customers, um, there's a lot of feedback out there to be had, and so. We do run a lot of pilots. We run a lot of tests. We um, speak to customers quite closely about the experiences they're having. We have several customers that are really big advocates of electric vehicles, but also big advocates of sharing the disability community, some of the challenges, and sharing them with myself and our team so that we can try and overcome those. So it's a it's a, it's a broad range, really, to to answer the question. But I guess as we as it gets bigger. And you're, you're, you know what you're alluding to is absolutely right. You need disabled people and disabled electric vehicle users to be able to measure the 
accessibility of a charge point through their own lens and then share that information. And so what you can see emerging here, and this is something we're really interested in, and as I said, actively working on, but what you can start to see is almost, imagine TripAdvisor. Why couldn't we have a TripAdvisor for charge points with the layers on there being around accessibility and safety? Now, that crowdsourced information, and I mean every um, ounce of respect with this, Gary, but that crowdsourced information from users will be much more valuable to us than what you'll be able to do, for example, when you go out and inspect these charge points, because it will come from people that are living with these challenges, and they will be able to pass on those experiences to other people that are living with these challenges. And so, and, and, and as I say, you can't group disability up into one. Everybody's disability is different. And so how do you find the right measures that, without becoming too detailed, allow people to understand whether a charge point will work for them or not? And that's really the, the challenge I think we have. Um, and then how do we make sure that we can get that out and share that information? And as I said, what we're not trying to do here is make any commercial win from this. We want this information to be as widely available as possible. Um, we want people, uh, and obviously protecting everybody's confidentiality and, and information, but we want people to be able to understand whether a charge point works for them or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, John Jenkins, thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for having me on. It's been, um, it's been great to talk to you. A couple of takeaways from this for me. Motability sells 750 vehicles every day. These are refurbished or end-of-lease models going into the open market. They're not all EVs, but given the huge number of disabled people in the country, the number of EVs is rising. This is a great source of used EVs going back into the market. And John, John told me that the number of EVs going back into the system from the Motability Scheme is still relatively low as they only started doing any lease volume on EVs in the last year. So bear in mind that these are sales post-lease. So small volumes are coming out at the end of leases at this stage. In terms of applications, they've been tracking at about 12% of all applications in Motability. Accessibility at charges is more than just making them wide enough to get a wheelchair there. There are many other things such as making the interface and payment options simple enough to be used without timing out and running up huge authorization bills on an account, for example. So I'd like to say many thanks to Jonathan for his time. A very interesting conversation. I think you'll agree. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. The city of Denver, Colorado announced a scheme to help pay for electric bikes in the city. The grants were all taken up within 20 minutes. Denverites flooded the city's online portal to apply for an electric bike rebate, which offered to take $300 off the price of a new e-bike for all Denver residents. Income qualified residents could receive an even higher rebate of $1,200. Additional rounds of rebates will be launched five more times this year on March 28th, May 30th, July 24th, September 26th, and November 28th. $4.77 million in vouchers were provided, leading to a purchase of 9.34 million in electric bikes. Around two thirds of these vouchers went to income qualified applicants. The city reported that the e-bikes purchased as part of the program were ridden 26 miles per week on average, and replace 3.4 car trips each week. Fewer cars, more active travel and public transport. That's the way forward. Well done, Denver. 
The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in-car on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingTV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. Takes Apple Pay too. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. <laughs> so you've got electric. It is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So you've gone renewable is also available on Amazon for 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words accessibility for all. Hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's keen to make sure that everyone has the option or ability to go electric wherever and whenever they want. This extends from simple personal electric vehicles like e-bikes, right through to electric planes and boats. The choice should be there. I asked him if he's managed to set up salary sacrifice for people wanting electric aircraft. He told me, we don't have that exact dynamic setup at the moment. It's not something that, that we can actually do. Thanks for listening. Bye.